I see you're looking for something special. So follow me down the hall into the catacombs of the Institute. Watch the cobwebs. It gets pretty bad. Uh, don't slip on the bones. And let me light this torch. It's getting kind of dark. You got a lighter? I don't know. I left my lighter up. Oh, shoot. So we don't have a lighter. We don't have a torch. Uh, we'll figure something out. All right. Anyway, here we are at the bottom. Let me flip the light switch. Here, we hide the most heinous of disasters. Behind this door, we have the worst movie ever made. Behold, I bring you Mac and Me. It's a 1988 American comic science fiction film. The film centers on a mysterious alien creature, or Mac, that escapes from a nefarious NASA agent and is befriended by a wheelchair-using boy named Eric Cruz. You get it? Wheelchair, he's cruising along. This is so campy. Together, Eric and Mac find Mac's family where they have been separated from. This film flopped at the box office and was universally panned by critics, in part due to its imitations of numerous concepts from E.T., as well as its elaborate product placement of McDonald's and Coca-Cola. The film was nominated for four Golden Raspberry Awards and won Worst Director, Worst New Star. However, it received four Youth in Film Awards. The film has a 0% approval rating, according to Rotten Tomatoes, and is widely regarded as one of the worst films ever made. However, it did become a cult film. Upon its release, Mac and Me was reviewed negatively due to its imitations of other concepts. Uh, keeps going back to E.T. Uh, however, Mac never said phone home. He just whistled because he looked like he was kissing someone's ass all the time. Do you notice that? Every one of them, every alien, the puckering up like they're meant to suck a straw or something else that's kind of long and skinny and well i'm not going there the contrivance of the mysterious alien creature being referred to by the acronym mac a dance number at a mcdonald's featuring ronald mcdonald and the characters wearing of mcdonald's clothing Oh, yeah, you remember McDonald's clothing? They used to be sold in the malls. Man, I'm really dating myself, aren't I? Used to have a, all kinds of character clothes meant for children. The kids' sections were totally different back in the 80s and 90s than they were today. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm lamenting. Anyhow... 
On review the aggregator of Rotten Tomatoes with 25 reviews, the film has a rare 0% approval rating and an average rating of 2.7 out of 10. The site's consensus reads, Mac and Me is duly infamous, not only as it a pale imitation of E.T., it is also a thinly veiled feature-length commercial for McDonald's and Coca-Cola. I see that you are a glutton for pain today while we're here in the catacombs. Let's go a little further. Let's really get painful here. No, not whips and chains. No, I don't have a table. No, I'm not flaying you alive. Even though we do have a collection of Pinhead down here. Uh, you know, all the different films. I think we got five or six different Pinheads. We got a bunch of... Uh, Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff down here. I don't even want to bring you to it because I'm going to save some of those for another another trip that you're going to make to my world here at the Institute. Yeah, I think I'm going to talk about puppets one time. Puppets and horror films. Yeah, for today. We're going to television land. So the worst television show ever made climb aboard because here comes the super train the series takes place on the super train a nuclear powered bullet train that is equipped with amenities more appropriate to a cruise ship it has luxuries such as swimming pools shopping centers a gym library medical center and a discotheque it's, it is so so big that it has to run on every broad gauge track though it has rated stops top speed of uh 250 miles an hour which is 402.34 kilometers per hour for all my non-american listeners the cru it cruises at 190 miles an hour which is 305.78 kilometers per hour for again my non-American friends. The train takes 36 hours to go from New York to Los Angeles and will put the train's average speed at around 80 miles an hour or 128.75 kilometers per hour. It's slower than that of an Amtrak and well below the speeds of bullet trains in Europe and Asia. Some episodes state, however, that the train also stops in Chicago, Denver, and a fictitious town in Texas, and presumably other cities, which would extend the length of the run and thus would require faster speeds. Much like its contemporary The Love Boat, the plots concern the passengers' social lives, usually with multiple intertwining storylines. Super Train was described as, in a 1979 Variety review, it's a love boat on wheels, which is yet to get on track. Most of the cast of each given episode were guest stars. The production was elaborate with huge sex sets. Yeah, sex. I'm sure that that was on the show too. Uh, but that they, they used a high-tech model train for outside shots. In 2002 which 
was quite a while ago by my calculations. Uh, TV Guide ranked Super Train number 28 on its 50 worst TV shows of all time list. In the May of 1979 edition of TV Guide, the show received criticism from Robert McKenzie. He compares the futuristic train to his traditional ideas of a Pullman locomotive and describes the environment as a bigger, gaudier, and noisier, including the passengers. Mackenzie's flaw with the show was its reliance on the extravagant train to wow the audience and the lack of character depth or entertaining plot. When the early ratings proved disappointing, NBC, see, that, that's the problem. It's all NBC. Almost every single show that NBC puts out is like crap. I don't know why. Uh, getting back. Lack of character depth and entertaining plot. When the early ratings proved disappointing, NBC took the series off the air for emergency surgery. Like it needs a brain transplant. The all-new Super Train appeared April 14th, looking remarkably like the old Super Train. You know, don't get that confused with Soul Train. That's something different. And that wouldn't be on NBC anyhow. Because Don Cornelius would not like that. It shows NBC's attempt to fix the show's flaws mid-season, so they knew right away that the damn show sucked. I mean, think about this. You have a, a giant train. We don't even have normal trains that take passengers. Amtraks are few and far between. They don't travel at, and, well, they do travel at high rates, but still. It takes you 10 days to get anywhere because it stops everywhere. It's like, get me a car, get me a freeway. I'll just get wherever I need to be of my own. I'm tired of this crap. It's been, after the, the mid-season rebuild, they summarized it by saying, this tale dragged even more than previous episodes, despite the attempt to glamorize it with models and bikinis. Now, a model in a bikini, that might do it for me. I mean, we all watched uh, Pamela Anderson, and she wasn't even in a bikini. I mean, we watched all the other one girls on that show, too. Uh, was it? Watch or something, or pigs on a beach, I don't know, some, something like that. Super Train was critiqued by the Telefilm Review in the February 9th, 1979 edition of Variety. The article begins, NBC's highly promoted new Super Train series features a slick new train of tomorrow. Okay, there's no problem with that. First of all, tomorrow... There shouldn't be any trains. We shall be flying around like the Jetsons. I'm still waiting for my damn flying car. Every day, I'm just sitting here thinking, I should be teleporting somewhere. It's the 21st century. Who the hell rides a train these days? Oh, and here he is. Slick new train of tomorrow with a script from yesterday. You know... 
I have no words. I'm sorry. I have no words for this. I, 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 this is just bad. <laughs> it's just really bad. The, they're saying that they're emphasized the, the train is the main character. It's like, like they were talking about uh, Love Boat. The boat's the main character. No, it's not. It's just the, the set. It's what you were on. Oh. It's like the Incredible Hulk where the gamma radiation is the, the main character. What? Seriously, it makes no sense. Uh, what else do we have here? Without better scripts, the train's trek. Oh, Star Trek. Okay, I get it. Trek. Yeah, so they were Trekkies. And train's trek. No, trains don't trek. Trains roll. They barely do that. There's so many derailments. Oh, they hit a bunch of animals on the track. They're going to kill them all. Did you ever see those videos? Most of them are like in Europe or in Asia where the train's coming and just like sheep or goats all over the road and then the train just like runs them all over and just splatters everything with blood and then they have to go and hose it off or else it gets baked on it starts looking really really bad stinking Could you imagine all that stinking animal parts all over the, the oh, it's, I just can't I just can't wow They're saying that they neglected the characterizations of the for the sake of the camera angles, and his, the contribution of the producer was a sorrowful one. You know that's the thing with producers; they they're the ones that have to have the ideas. You know, they're the director calls the shots, but the producer is the one that tells the director how they should do things. We have the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The brains. Yeah, I'll go with that, the brains. But but if you have a producer who doesn't know what the hell they're doing, I'm sorry. You, you, you're not going to get anywhere doing anything. You have a producer that just sits there with a thumb up his butt. Super train. Oh, man. Oh, okay. So, what do you think of that? I'm not sure. I don't even know why I brought you down to the catacombs. There's just nothing but a bunch of shit down here. Oh, wait. Where are you going? You're not listening to me anymore? You're walking away from me now? Why are you walking away from me? Don't go over into that room. That says employees only. Do you, unless you want to become an employee, I can let you in there. Uh, how do you become an employee? Well, you could always donate to Patreon. We don't have it up and running yet because we're working with different uh, different currencies and trying to figure out how to navigate it. But we will have the Patreon up and running. And then if you contribute, uh, we will have different points of uh, where you can get an, a shirt and it says employee of the institute 
So you, you have the big logo on the back and then the employee on the front with Institute. And uh, yeah, and then a lanyard with the Institute. Not, not too shabby. You're just like me. Wondering why you're here today. Anyhow. Uh, and then for anybody else, if you donate enough, we can uh, we can hook you up too, uh, because I'm working with embroiderers now. You know, we can get some nice patches for everybody with our with the logo. I think that'd be kind of cool. You know, you can put on your jacket or purse or. I was going to say knapsack, but who the hell uses those things anymore? Uh, that, that's an old term. So, go, talking about patches. Patches were really big with punk rock. Yeah, no, that's a segue, isn't it? Trying to sell you on being an employee here at the Institute, and I'm putting you right into punk rock. So you go from shit... To like, like angst. angst. I like, I like angst. angst. That's a fun word to say. So, what is punk rock? Or simply put, punk. It, it's a genre that emerged in the mid-70s. It was rooted in the 1960s garage rock. Punk bands rejected the perceived excesses of mainstream 70s rock. Now, in my mind, I would say mainstream 70s rock would be like what we call yacht rock today, or uh, hangovers from the 60s, or bands like Kiss, where they, they're supposed to be cool, but, you know, they look really mean and whatnot, but their songs are so, like, limp, for lack of a better word. So, punk were typically produced short, fast-paced songs with hard-edged melodies and singing styles. They stripped down instrumentation and often political anti-establishment lyrics. Punk embraces a DIY ethic, do-it-yourself. Many bands self-produce recordings and distribute them through independent record labels. The term punk rock was first used by American rock critics in the early 70s to describe 60s garage bands. Man, so there was a time when garage bands actually meant something. Today... <laughs> Lots of friggin' luck. Unless you're all over the internet, you you gonna suck. So the so when the movement now bearing the name of punk rock developed from '74 to '76, acts such as Television, Patti Smith, and the Ramones. Oh God, I love the Ramones. From New York City, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, love them. And the damned love them out of London. The runaways love them in Los Angeles. I think they had a movie made about the runaways not too long ago. Uh, 
trying to remember all the band members. You had Lita Ford. You had, ooh, was it Joan Jett? I think it was. I can't think of the other two. Anyhow, then from Brisbane, so Australia, you got the Saints. Punk became a major cultural phenomenon in the UK in late 76. It led to a punk subculture expressing youthful rebellion through distinctive styles of clothing and adornment. Wow. Okay. So, I'm just thinking about what 21st century punk would look like. So, you, you had... You had the spike hairs, the, the spikes, everything. Uh, like, here, uh, offensive t-shirts, leather jackets, studded or spiked bands and jewelry, safety pins and bondage and S&M clothes. Could you imagine people walking around with a gimp mask? Just think about that. S&M clothing, gimp masks. Oh, or, or ball gag. Yeah, let's put a ball gag on a bunch of people. Say that way they can't talk. Ooh. Just think about that. Just walking on the street, see some whack job standing there in a corner, driving in his car. Picture him with a ball gag. I don't know. It, it just. Man, I, 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 I definitely would picture the ladies with a with a few things on them too, but I, I don't really want to go there uh, because there's, in case there's our ladies listening, I don't want to offend you, but my God, the, the, the things that they can do. So in 77, the influence of the music and subculture spread worldwide. Especially in England, it took root in a wide range of local scenes that often rejected affiliation with the mainstream. In the late 70s, punk experienced a second wave as new acts that were not active during its formative years adopted the style. So, by the early 1980s, faster and more aggressive subgenres such as hardcore punk, such as Minor Threat, ooh, I haven't heard them in a while, Street punk, such as the exploited, and anarcho-punk, or like crass. Man, we gotta listen to some of these bands. They became the predominant modes of punk rock. Musicians identifying with or inspired by punk also pursued other musical directions, giving rise to spin-offs, such as post-punk, new wave, and later indie pop, alternative rock, and noise rock. By the 90s, punk re-emerged into the mainstream with the successes of punk rock, pop rock bands such as Green Day, Rancid, The Offspring, and Blink-182. What's my age again? What's my age again? The first wave of punk rock was aggressively modern and it differed from what came before. According to the Ramones drummer Tommy Ramone, 
In its initial form, a lot of the 60s stuff was innovative and exciting. Unfortunately, what happens is that people could not hold a candle to the likes of Hendrix. They started noodling away. Soon you had endless solos that went nowhere. By 1973, Tommy Ramon says that he knew that what was needed was some pure, stripped-down, no-bullshit rock and roll. John Holstrom, founding editor of Punk Magazine, recalls feeling punk rock had to come along because the rock scene had become so tame that acts like Billy Joel and Simon and Garfunkel were being called rock and roll, when to me and other fans, rock and roll meant this wild and rebellious music. Hippies were rainbow extremists. Punks were romantics of black and white. Hippies forced warmth. Punks cultivate cool. Hippies kidded themselves about free love, and punks pretended that S&M is our condition. As symbols of protest, swastikas are no less... Oh, I'm not even going there. We're not talking about swastikas. Yeah, I know it's part of the punk thing. I'm not talking about them. Not in today's climate. Not ever. We're not going there. I'm not cutting that out. I, I'm not going there. I am not going there. I like the punk that likes people. I don't like the punk that... <laughs> Heil's Hitler. <laughs> what the hell is this that I'm reading? So, technical accessibility and a do-it-yourself DIY spirit prized in punk rock, UK pub rock. Ooh, pubs. I could go for a pint right about now. Like a tall Guinness. Ah, uh, yeah, Guinness. So... In the UK pub rock from 72 to 75, it contributed to the emergence of punk rock by developing a network of small venues such as pubs. Ooh. Where non-mainstream bands could play, pub rock also introduced the idea of independent record labels such as Stiff Records. Oh, I get it. With like S&M with Stiff. Yeah. Which put out basic low-cost records. Pub rock bands organized their own small venue tours and put out small pressings of their records. In the early days of punk rock, this DIY ethic stood in marketed contrast to what those in the scene regarded as the ostentatious musical effects and technological demands of many mainstream rock bands. Well, I guess in the 70s, they used a lot of moogs and they used a lot of synths and everything. It was like starting to come into vogue. Ooh. I guess that's where what led to New Wave. Interesting, interesting. Musical virtuosity was often looked on with suspicion. According to Holstrom, who, if you don't recall, he was the... Uh, he was the guy I talked to earlier. I'm trying to find him here. He was a founding editor of Punk Magazine. Okay, so we're, gonna, we're talking about Holstrom. Yeah, yeah, that's a ticket. Holstrom. Punk rock was rock and roll by people who didn't have very many skills as musicians. 
but still felt the need to express themselves through music. So it's like people that rob a bank without wearing a mask. You don't have the smarts and the wherewithal, but you want to do it anyhow, because that's punk. In December, 70, in December of 1976, the English fanzine Sideburns. Yeah, Sideburns. Yeah, we got a lot. I have lots of friends that have Sideburns. They're like really big and thick and long and yeah. It published a now famous illustration of three chords. Caption, this is a chord, this is another, this is a third. Now form a band. Yeah, that's, that's why when you listen to like old old rock, like uh, ACDC, okay. Yeah, they're not punk. They're not really metal. They're, they're rock. And every one of their songs is three chords. Three. Three chords. Angus Young learned three chords, and he made a band. That's, that's all you really need to know. And they sing about being back in black. But not one of them was goth. Figure that one out. So... British punk rejected contemporary mainstream rock, the broader culture it represented, and their music predecessors. No Elvis, Beatles, or the Rolling Stones in 1977, declared the Clash song 1977. Now I want to listen to that again. You know, I'm like revisiting a lot of stuff here, so I'm glad you pointed out the punk rock. This is good. We're all learning something today. So in 76, when the punk revolution began here in Britain, it became a musical and cultural year zero. Year zero. I think that was a movie with Jack Black, if I recall. Yeah, I don't recommend it. Uh, nostalgia was discarded. Many in the scene adopted a nihilistic attitude summed up by the Sex Pistols slogan, No Future. Yeah, that's very poignant. In the later words of one observer amid the unemployment and the social unrest in 1977, Punk's nihilistic swagger was the most thrilling thing in England, while self-imposed alienation was common among drunk punks and gutter punks. Okay. I'm just thinking of gutter mouth, but we're not talking about that kind of punk yet. We're getting there. There was always a tension between their nihilistic outlook and the radical leftist utopianism. That's a word. There is no such thing as utopia. It's all in your mind. It's all perception, man. Get a hold of yourself. Bands such as, the, uh, as Crass, who found positive, liberating meaning in the movement, as Clash Associate describes singer Joe Strummer's outlook, punk rock is meant to be our freedom. We're meant to be able to do what we want to do. 
Yeah. You know? Fuck authority. Just do do what you gotta do. Stand up for yourself. Don't don't be a follower. You know, I talked about being a sheep in my last in your last visit here. Uh, I'm not gonna go there again, but that's pretty much what punk was is don't be a sheep. The issue of authenticity is important in the punk subculture. The, the pejorative term, poser, po, I'm sorry, poser, poser, it applies to those who associate with punk and adopt its stylistic attributes, poser, but it's deemed not to share or understand the underlying values and philosophy, poser. Scholar Daniel Trauber argues that Attaining authenticity in the punk identity can be difficult. As the punk scene matured, he observes eventually everyone got called a poser. Poser. Oh, I see. You want to know something else. Is that why you're looking at me like that? You want me to talk more about being a poser? No. Oh, I see. You want to know about me? You looking at me? Ain't nobody else here. You looking at me? Well, like I said before, now my whole youth and uh, youngness—lack of a better word—I yeah, was I was into rockabilly. That was my my bag. I. Which is weird because once the 90s hit, uh, my rockabilly kind of flipped over to being grunge. But the taste was still there. Sometimes you just got to take a bite of something and say, oh, this tastes pretty good. And say, I like that. I want to be more of that. I want to be, I want to be a rockabilly. Well, anyhow, like I said, the last your last visit, rockabilly is a style and derivative of goth. Believe it or not, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It was a great, great podcast, great time here in the institute. I'll tell you, told you everything you wanted to know and things you didn't want to know, but you found out anyhow. Because you had to keep poking around at it, poking around. And I gave you everything. So, what is rockabilly? I know that this, when you hear a billy or anything a billy, you think hillbilly. Immediately you think hillbilly. Well, I'm not going to tell you anything about hillbillies today because we all know that it involves moonshine stills. And there's plenty of those out there. You can go down in the holler. You're going to get your moonshine. You're going to get your moonshine runner. And you're going to go. You're going to go drink some old smoky. And you're going to enjoy it. You're going to get it high off of whiskey. Homemade whiskey. I don't know. Have I ever had it? No. Uh, and the closest thing I had to something nearly killing me was 
shots of 151, and that was way back in the day. And I could only imagine what would happen after that, because you, you get some of that 151 or that Everclear, and you get it in your mouth, you swish it around, you get it behind your teeth, you get it underneath your tongue, and then you spit it out into the fire, and you got yourself a show. I don't know. That's just what I say. Today, it's all about beer. Beer, beer, beer. Although, I have found some wines, so maybe I have matured somewhat. But, yeah, going back, I got my whiskey. Whiskey. Whiskey sour. Whiskey straight. Whiskey on the rocks. The Serono. Maker's Mark. Yeah, you're a Maker's Mark type of guy, aren't you? You like that little bit of uh, wax on your bottle. You like to get your teeth around that wax and open up that bottle with your mouth. Like a man. Just rip it right off. Unless if you're a Jack Daniels guy. Or girl. I'm not sure who's listening or who you are. I know you're there, I see you, but I don't know who you are. Who are you? I'll never know. Hell, only you know who you are, and half the time you don't even know that. Because you've been drinking a lot of whiskey. So, rockabilly. Rockabilly, yeah, rockabilly. Let's talk about rockabilly. Rockabilly. Rockabilly is one of the earliest styles of rock and roll. Dates back to the early 1950s in the United States, especially in the South. So, apparently good things came out of the South. Not just a Confederate flag. Which represents a country that doesn't exist. But that's a different point. I ain't going to touch on that, because we ain't talking about history. We're talking about Rockabilly. So it's a genre that blends the sound of Western music styles, such as country, with that of rhythm and blues, leading to what is considered classic rock and roll. Stay with me here. We're going to go down a rabbit hole now. Some have also described it as a blend of bluegrass with rock and roll. The term rockabilly itself is a... Okay, so, yes, rockabilly is the com combining the terms of rock and hillbilly. I needed this to tell me that. We all knew that. So, the latter is a reference to country music, often called hillbilly music in the 40s and 50s. They contributed strongly to this, that style. Other important influences of rockabilly include western swing, boogie woogie, Sounds like a Disney character. Jump blues and electric blues. Electric blues. I think there's a song called Electric Blue. Got that. I have that stupid chord progression stuck in my head now. Defining features of rockabilly sound included strong rhythms, vocal twangs, and common use of the tape echo. Ooh, echo. 
but progressive addition of different instruments and vocal harmonies led to its dilution. Initially popularized, popularized, popularized. Yeah, that's a lot of syllables there. Artists such as Wanda Jackson, Billy Adams, Johnny Cash, yay, Bill Haley, from Bill Haley in the comments, yay, Buddy Holly, yay, uh, airplane crash, ah, Elvis Presley, I died on a toilet, Carl Perkins, Bob Lumen, Eddie Cochran, and Jerry Lee Lewis, goodness gracious, my balls are on fire. The rockabilly style worn in the late 1950s, nonetheless, during the late 1970s and early 1980s, rockabilly enjoyed a revival. An interest in the genre endures even in the 21st century. Often, within musical subcultures, rockabilly has spawned a variety of substyles and influencing other genres such as punk rock. Yes, see? I'm not, I'm not stupid. Punk rock is all about punk rock. Everything's about punk rock. Could you see Elvis with a freaking mohawk? That's an image right there. Elvis with a mohawk with a lay around his neck and a jumpsuit with a leather jacket with studs on it. Singing, fuck yeah, Las Vegas. There was a close relationship between blues and country music from the very earliest country recordings in the 1920s. The first nationwide country hit was Wreck of Old 97. Now, I think Old 97 is a, uh, a train, but I want to say it's also a brand of whiskey. It was backed with Lonesome Road Blues, which also became a quite popular. Uh, and Jimmy Rogers, the first true country star, was known as the Blue Yodeler. Oh my God, yodeling. Oh God. Now I got freaking sound of music stuck in my head. Ah, head hurts, head hurts. Most of his songs use blues-based chord progressions, although with very different instrumentation, the sound from the recordings of his black contemporaries like Blind Melon Jefferson and Bessie Smith. Blind Lemon Jefferson. Now, I don't typically make fun of people's nicknames because I got some wild ones. I mean, look at me. I'm the low G man. What does G stand for? Gravity. Yes. So what does that mean? I'm always fucking high. Oh, well. So Blind Lemon Jefferson and Bessie Smith. During the 1930s and 1940s, two new sounds emerged. Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys Okay, I'm sorry, Texas people, but when I think of Texas Playboys, I get an image in my head quite similar to 
what they would say about certain types of people and sheep. Yeah, but in Texas, everything's bigger, so you go for the longhorns. You just hold them on tight, and yeah, I'm not going there right now. Uh, but if you want to take that image further, by all means, knock yourself out. Be careful, they kick. So, Bob Wills was a leading proponent of Western Swing. It combined country singing and steel guitar with big band jazz. His influences, well, big band jazz influences. Sure. Yeah, big band jazz influences and horn sections. Oh, yeah. Horn sections, so I'm thinking ska. Okay, yeah. I'm going back to the punk scene, man. So Will's music found massive popularity. The recordings of Will's is from the mid-1940s and early 50s include two-beat jazz rhythms and jazz choruses. Guitar work that preceded early rockabilly recordings. Okay, so two-beat jazz rhythms and jazz choruses was earliest forms of guitar work. Oh, well, that could be interesting. I can only imagine. So Wills is qu quoted by saying, rock and roll? Why, man, that's the some kind of music that we've been playing since 1928. Okay. But it's just basic rhythm and has gone by a lot of different names in my time. It's the same whether you just follow a drum beat like in Africa or sounded it with a lot of instruments. The rhythm is what important. Okay. So there's a lot of things wrong with that statement. That is kind of a cultural appropriation stuff, and I'm not going there right now. So disclaimer, not my point of view. That's Mr. Bob Wills. So, after blues artists like uh, Pete Johnson launched a nationwide boogie craze starting in the 1938, country artists like Moon Mulligan. I wonder if his body was shaped like a moon or his face was shaped like a moon. That's a weird name, man. Oh, maybe he was Native American. Or maybe he was a Zappa. Ooh, think of that one. The Delmore Brothers, Tennessee Ernie Ford. I always thought that was just a car. I, when I was growing up, before I heard Tennessee Ernie Ford, and I heard the name, I thought it. I, I heard Ford. I thought it was a car. I thought it was like a model of a car, the Tennessee Ernie. I wonder what it would sound like if it really was, though. You rev that engine, and what do you hear? Think about that one. Speedy West. Oh. See, now, the only person I, or fictitious person I've ever known that's named Speedy. Yes, we're going to Warner Brothers land. Looney Tune character, drum roll, please. Speedy Gonzalez. Now, 
In reality, if you call someone Speedy Gonzalez, that means they just border jumped. They didn't get caught. Uh, which I'm probably guessing that's where that character got its name. Uh, yeah, again, cultural appropriation, I know. Boo-hoo, cry, 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 boo-hoo, cry. Uh, I get it. Uh, Jimmy Bryant and the Maddox brothers and Rose. Huh. They began recording what was known as Hillbilly Boogie, which consisted of Hillbilly vocals and instrumentation with a boogie bass line. Okay, so boogie. Who does the boogie that we can relate this to? I'm going to say the band The Stray Cats. Brian Setzer. Yeah, we're going to go with that right, to make the correlation here. That's Boogie. So the Maddox Brothers and Rose were the leading edge of rockabilly with a slapped bass that Fred Maddox had developed. Maddox said, you've got to have something that they can tap their foot to dance to or to make them feel it. Yeah, I, I agree. Having been a DJ for quite some time, uh, always trying to find music that will get people moving. See, it's one thing to listen to music and just sit there and just zone and listen. It's another thing to, to listen to music and want to be involved. It just, you feel it. Like, like uh, case in point, when I was a kid and I was sitting in elementary school and they had, a, the, I think the high school band was... Uh, made a tour of all the elementary schools in the town and uh, they, they played uh, I shit you not they played the uh, Jurassic Park theme now I've, I saw the movie uh, when it came out you know in the theaters uh, ironically on Christmas Day I remember, I remember the whole thing I remember what the theater was and everything it was, it was that important to me at that time uh, but anyhow, I'm sitting there, and the band is playing the theme, the suite. It's the, you know, the, the thing you hear at Universal Studios when you're walking through the land on your way to the Velocicoaster. Yeah, well, I'll talk about Universal later. I got a lot of insider stuff on that one. Uh, but when I were, they were playing that song, I was just like, invested i was so totally like there i got to that that one section of the song and then i'm thinking i could see the freaking dinos in the room it was like that they were good so whatever happened to those kids from way back they're probably dead now for all i know because they were at least a good 20 years older than me or what i would think like 20 years could be maybe 10 I don't know how, how old was I in elementary school 13 they were oh it wasn't quite 10 years maybe eight years no 12 12 or 13 I don't know how old are you in like fifth and sixth grade I can't even remember anymore my brain is shot oh that's why they call me the low G man um anyhow the only other so, uh, movie song that's ever done that to me, uh, besides Jurassic Park, was 
The Forrest Gump theme. Yeah. That feather theme. Since that movie, you have never, I have never, ever, ever heard a, 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 a suite, a, a song, a theme in a movie that made you feel anything at all. It was like, it, it, like you, you can, you hear that theme and you can picture dim-witted forest sitting there on that damn bench. Which is sad because they want you to feel sorry for Forrest, which I did. But then you take the same type of dumb idiots and put them in Dumb and Dumber. We have a, we, we have a problem. So. Anywho. Getting back. You keep getting me off the, these damn tangents all the time. I just keep rambling, 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 rambling. We're never going to get through all this crap. So, all right, getting back. After World War II, the band, well, do you remember what the band's name was? I bet you don't. The Maddox Brothers and Rose. They shifted into higher gear leaning more towards a whimsical honky-tonk feel with a heavy, manic bottom end, the slap bass of Fred Maddox. They played hillbilly music, but it sounded real hot. They played real loud for that time, too. The Maddoxes were also known for their lively antics and stuff. We've always put on a show. I mean, it just wasn't us up there picking and singing. There was something going on all the time. The demonstrative medics has helped release weight bodies from traditional motions of decorum. More and more younger weight artists began to have, or began to behave. See, I need new glasses. They began to behave on stage like it's the lively medics. Others believed that they were not only at the leading edge but were one of the first rockabilly groups, if not the first. So, along with the country swing and boogie influences, jump blues artists such as Wynoni Harris and Roy Brown and an electric blues act such as Howlin' Wolf. Now that's a cool name. Just walking down the street, hey, there's this Howlin' Wolf. Um, could you imagine him? Imagine what he would do. He would just howl. He doesn't really sing. He just howls. Looks up at the sky and howls. You hear the chord, he howls. Uh, Junior Parker and Arthur Cudrup. They influence and develop the, the development of rockabilly. Okay, so they... They took what the Maddoxes did and they put it in a formula with, with all this. Okay, I get this now. Are you still following along? We're not done yet. The Memphis blues music, musician Junior Parker and his electric blues band, Little Junior's Blue Flames, featuring Pat Hare on the guitar, were a major influence on the rockabilly style, particularly with their songs Love My Baby and Mystery Train. 
1953. Okay, mystery train. Well, we already talked about the super train. What's the mystery train? Is that like the magical mystery tour? Yeah. But on train. Like a, like a mystery train or something. So then we go to Zeb Turner's February 1953 recording of Jersey Rock with its mix of musical styles, lyrics about music and dancing, and a guitar solo is another example of mixing of musical genres in the first half of the 1950s. Bill Monroe is known as the father of bluegrass, a specific style of country music. Many of his songs were in the blues form, while others took the form of folk ballads, parlor songs, or waltzes. God, I hate waltzes. They're so fucking boring. Bluegrass was a staple of country music in the early 1950s and is often mentioned as an influence in the development of rockabilly. The honky-tonk sound. Okay, honky-tonk. That also sounds like cultural appropriation too, doesn't it? <laughs> honky-tonk. Uh, it tends to focus on working-class life with frequently tra tragic themes of lost love, adultery, loneliness, alcoholism, and self-pity. It also included songs of energetic, up-tempo hillbilly boogie. Some of the better-known musicians who recorded and performed these songs are... Drum roll, please. Bet you never heard of any of these guys before. The Delmore Brothers, the Maddox Brothers, and Rose. Hey, look, they came back. Merle Travis, Hank Williams, Hank Snow, and yes, even Tennessee Ernie Ford. Now we're going. Okay, we're moving on. Curtis Gordon's 1953 Rompin' and Stompin' is an up-tempo hillbilly boogie Included the lyrics, Way down south where I was born, They rocked all night till the early morn, They start rocking, they start rocking and rolling. Yeah, see, I could pick that out. In an interview that has been viewed at the Experience Music Project, Barbara Pittman states that it is known to new people and it was so easy that a three-chord change, rockabilly was a, actually an insult to the southern rockers at the time. Over the years, it has been picked up a little dignity, and it was their way of calling us hillbillies. Because you are a freaking hillbilly. You and your moonshine and, and your, your, your fast cars and your... Cold hands wrapped around your your guns and, and your flags, and, and you just want to be weird. One of the first written uses of the term rockabilly was in a June 23, 1956 Billboard review of Ruckus Tyler's Rocktown Rock. Three weeks earlier, rockabilly was used in a press release describing Gene Vincent's Bebop Baloo. 
Yeah, I, I think Elvis did that one too. The first record to contain the word rockabilly in a song title was issued in November 1956. Rockabilly gal. Although Johnny and Dorsey Bur Burnett. Johnny? 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 Oh, Johnny. They recorded Rockabilly Boogie for the choral label on July 4th of 56. The song had been written and performed much earlier and referred to the birth of Johnny's son, Rocky, and Dorsey's son, Billy. Oh, come on. I see what you did there. The two, the two were born around the same time in 53 and were firstborns of each other, or each of the brothers. Oh, God. The song was part of their repertoire in 1956 when they were living in New York City and performing with Gene Vincent. It's easy to understand how the New York audience might have thought the Burnettes. I wonder if they're related to Carol. They were saying Rockabilly Boogie, but they never would because the term, because she sang that country song. Remember that? It was a huge hit in the, what was that? I think it was a, a, uh, Billy Joe McAllister, the Tallahassee Bridge, or Tallahatchie. I don't know. I think you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, getting back to where I was going with this Burnett story. It's easy to understand how the New York audience might have thought that the Burnett's were singing Rockabilly Boogie, but they never would because the term hillbilly was derogatory. Oh, it's derogatory. And I was just throwing it out there like it was nothing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make fun of you. It would never have been used by the artists themselves. Rocky Burnett, who later would become a rockabilly artist himself, and stated on his website that he, the term rockabilly derives from the song. It's so interesting that the song has been covered by hundreds of artists in the nine years or is there nine in there? See, I told you my glasses are bad. It's always been called Rockabilly Boogie. The lyrics of Rockabilly Boogie would suggest that it has nothing to do with the birth of their sons. One verse goes, well, there's little old Susie turning 17. Well, everybody knows her as a Rockabilly queen. And there's old Slim, as quiet as a mouse, Grabs old Susie and they tear up the house. Okay. So they're talking about fornicating in the 50s, in the South. I wonder if they were cousins. Okay. Now. Yes, yes, I know, I know. You don't want to hear any more about Rockabilly. I, I've touched on a lot. I know I have. I don't, I'm sorry. It's just what I do. I touch on things. Maybe I'll touch you. So, uh, that was a, that was a, that was something. Let's go get some fresh air. So let's get out of these halls. Get out of the catacombs here and out out of the halls and 
Get some light. I need some vitamin D. Just because the walls are white and it reflects the light doesn't mean I don't have my vitamin D. Let's go outside. I'll show you something. We have a garage out back. Kind of like a little museum. It's where I store all my goods. It's separate from the Institute. And here we go. Uh, watch the eyes. Well, someone's going to start sneezing when they see that light. I know it. I know it. I feel it. Uh, it's coming. Okay. I think I'm good. Hot rods. Yeah. You see that over there? There's three of them. Black one. Red one. And a blue one. Now, the blue one. I made that one when I was young. That was one my first one. Uh, the blue hot rod was a was a, my intention of mocking up the hot rod that was created in the the Disney Silly Symphony uh, of the Little Blue Coop. Uh, I'm sure you remember it. If you don't, it's on Disney Plus. It, it, it's it's touching because they made an inanimate object, you know. Uh, it was like, it was cars before cars. Kachow. Kachow, tiger. We're going, oh. So here, we got, uh, what is a hot rod? You know, it's not a movie starring an SNL alum. No, it's not. Even though it was a really badass movie, thoroughly enjoyed it so if you're out there listening mr sandberg kudos my friend kudos so hot rods are typically old classic or modern american cars that have been rebuilt or modified from large engines modified 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 for speed and acceleration one definition is a car that has been stripped down souped up and made you go much faster. So, did that really tell you anything? I didn't learn anything off of that. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Um, however, there's no definition of the term that is universally accepted, and the term is attached to a wide range of vehicles. Most often, they are individually designed and constructed using components from many makes of old or new cars are most prevalent in the United States. Many are intended for exhibition rather than racing or everyday driving. You see, the cars that are sitting over there, I don't drive them. They kind of just sit there. Got to dust them off. Because you see the engine, the engine's open. There's no cover for that. So being in the heat, the hot sun, or the cold winter, or the rain, you got yourself a problem. It's going to be steamy in there. And it might drown out the engine, and you're kind of fucked. So I love them. If I if I know the weather's great, I will I will have it out there. But all in all, 
I haven't really driven any of these three in, oh, 10 years at least. I think the next place you might see these cars are on American Picture. Maybe you have Mike and Frank come over here and saying, how much do you want for this hot rod? I love hot rods. You got them over here at Iowa. You got them down in Nashville. How much do you want for your hot rod? Yeah, no, I ain't selling my hot rods. They're just going to sit here. Now, if I show you my other collection of cars in the other building across the parking lot, you will definitely see what I drive every day. You'd be surprised. You think these cars are hot? Those aren't. Not at all. They're, yeah, they're, they're junk. Um, so, the origin of the term hot rod is unclear. Okay, so I'm teaching you stuff that no one really knows anything about. Even the teachers here at the Institute. It's unclear. No one knows. It just is. For example, some say that the term hot refers to the vehicle being stolen. All right. So I know some guys that stole cars. I think we called them hot in the 80s. I don't know. Other origin stories include replacing the engine's crankshaft, or rod, with a high-performance version. According to Hot Rod Industry Alliance, the term changes in the meaning over the years, for hot rodding has less to do with the vehicle and more to do with the attitude and lifestyle. For example, hot rods were favorites for greasers. Okay. That's an earworm for you. Go grease lightning, go, go grease lightning. The term has broadened to apply to other items that are modified for a particular purpose, such as hot-rotted amplifier. Ooh. So if it's already a hot rod and it's amplified, I'll tell you, none of those three cars over there are amplified. They're just what you see. I mean, you can't really turn them up to 11. You try. Yeah, we just, we just don't. Uh, the predecessors of the hot rod were modified cars used in the Prohibition area. Area, yeah. This area over here is for Prohibition, and that area over there you can get slashed. Prohibition era by bootleggers to evade revenue agents and the other law enforcement. Okay, so other law enforcement. So you have... I wonder, did they have marshals back then? Who really... Who, who, who was the bootleggers evading? Was it just law, local law enforcement? I guess I have to go to that Prohibition Museum. I think it's in Savannah. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
Go learn something off of that. Prohibition. God bless us so we don't have to worry about not being able to get smashed anymore. Like I said, 151 in Everclear, man. Best stuff in the world. Cleans everything. Won't, won't wake up for days. It's like an LSD dream, but with a lot of puking. So going forward, uh, I, I know I was talking about a lot of, a lot of stuff before, a lot of music, <laughs> but my favorite, my favorite uh, Hot Rod song, now, you would think it would be Hot Rod Lincoln or Gear Jammer by George Thorogood or uh, there's, a, there's a lot of, a lot of Hot Rod songs, but the one that I really like and yes, I will sing it for you, so bear with me, is One Piece at a Time by Johnny Cash. Yeah, that was a good song. That was a really good song. Uh, it, it's, a novel, it's a country novelty song. See, I, don't, I never really saw it as a novelty song. Even when I sing it, it's not really, I don't see it as a novelty. Like... To me, a novelty song is like Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer or The Streak by, uh, what's his name? The guy that says everything is beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Yeah, no. Um, Ray Stevens, that's the guy. Ray Stevens. God bless him. Uh, yeah, novelty songs. Or, here's a novelty song for you. Do you remember Convoy? They actually made two songs. It wasn't just Convoy. Anyway, that song was so big, they made a movie. It starred Chris Christopherson. Yeah, believe it or not. Country singer, starring in a country, really country movie about truck driving remember when truck driving was like the thing back in the 70s everyone wanted to be a truck driver because it was just like badass either a motorcycle rider or a truck driver sometimes you're both not at the same time though that would be kind of difficult so the song the song was recorded by johnny cash in the tennessee three in 1976. It was the last song performed by Cash to reach number one on the Billboard Hot Country Singles chart, and the last of Cash's songs to reach Billboard Hot 100, which peaked at number 29. That's something. Because <laughs> that was something. Because Cash was still recording way after that. I think Hurt actually hit something on the charts. I'd have to look that one up. Uh, his cover of uh, Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor. Personally, my favorite Johnny Cash cover is Rusty Cage 
Originally recorded by Soundgarden. Yeah. That, that's something. That's, that's definitely something. Um, now, you want to talk about cash songs, uh, we, can, we can dance around and talk about the Highwaymen, the big super group coming out of the uh, someone's brain, just get a bunch of hot country stars and throw them together and make, make them sing songs together. Now, the good thing is that they all were friends and they all used to sing together, but it's just, the Highwaymen was just really forced. Let's see, there was Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. Uh, that's, that's a whole other story right there. We could, we, I, could, I could talk about an hour about the Highwaymen. So, in the song, the narrator leaves his home in Kentucky in 1949 to pursue work at General Motors in Detroit. He started installing wheels on Cadillacs, watching each one roll by day after day after day on the assembly line, knowing that he will never be able to afford one on his own. Okay, so Detroit, I'm currently here in Cleveland, and Detroit's, what, couple hours away from me but and then I'm like four hours from Kentucky that's just the border so could you imagine I wonder, I wonder if he carpooled uh, so beginning almost immediately the narrator and co-worker decide to steal a Cadillac by way of using their assembly line jobs to obtain parts via salami slicing. There's a joke in there somewhere. Uh, he takes small parts home, hidden in his unusually large lunchbox. Larger parts are smuggled out in his co-worker's motorhome. Okay. This is, I see why this is a novelty song, because there is no way <laughs> that you would be able to do this without anyone noticing. I, I, I got this image in my head of uh, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I just, that's what I got in my head. Uh, the process of accumulating all the necessary parts turns out to take at least 25 years. The newest part mentioned that is the engine is from 1973. But once they have what they need to complete the car, they attempt to assemble the pieces because automakers inevitably make numerous changes to their models, designs and parts over the course of a quarter century. The result was a hodgepodge of parts from different years and models that did not fit together well. Despite these problems, the narrator and his co-worker get the car in proper working condition. The singer's wife is skeptical of the outcome, but wants to ride it in anyway. The song ends with a CB radio conversation between the narrator and a truck driver inquiring about the Psychobilly Cadillac. 
in which the singer replies, may say, I went right up to the factory and picked it up. It's cheaper that way. The song is in moderate tempo in the key of F major with the main chord pattern of F, B flat, C, and F. The verses are all done in talking blues style. Cash had used similar spoken word format and chord progressions in his earlier hit, A Boy Named Sue. Now, you want me to sing a song? I'll do that one. But here... Okay, so as we progress, Hot Rodding, Psychobillies, Psychobilly Cadillac, ah, Reverend Horton Heat. It's a stage name of the American musician Jim Heath, uh, as well as the name of his Dallas, Texas-based Psychobilly trio. Heath is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist, a Prick Magazine reviewer called Heath the Godfather of Modern Rockabilly and Psychobilly. The group formed in 86, playing his first gig in Dallas. His current members are Jim Heath on guitar and lead, Jimbo Wallace on the upright bass, and the band is signed to Victory Records uh, on November 27, 2012, and released his 12th studio album, A Whole New Life, in 2018. The band describes itself as rock and roll that is influenced by 1950s country, surf, punk, big band, swing, and rockabilly standards. The band mixes these influences into loud, energetic songs with often humorous lyrics. Video games, cartoons, and commercials have used the band's songs, giving the Reverend Horton Heat mainstream exposure. Okay. Okay. Yep, and sometimes you need a little psychobilly. What is psychobilly? Some psychobilly is often called horror billy. See, there's a lot of these derivatives. It's a rock music fusion genre that mixes elements of rockabilly and punk rock. See? Full circle, man, full circle. It's been defined as a loud, frantic rockabilly music. It's also been said that it takes a traditional, countrified rock style known as rockabilly, ramping it up to a speed of a sweaty pace and combining it with punk rock and imagery lifted from horror films and late-night sci-fi schlock creating a gritty honky-tonk punk rock. Dark imagery is also central to an offshoot of psychobilly known as gothabilly. I am not talking about gothabilly today. Don't even, I'm not, no. This rabbit hole is pretty damn deep, knowing everything is a derivative of punk. This is just nuts. This is just nuts. Wow, psychobilly. Do I know any psychobilly songs? <laughs> I'm not singing them for you. I, my, my voice can't take that right now. So, anywho, I'm getting a little carried away. I'm going to end it here. And I'll walk you back through the Institute. Uh, I'm not going to walk you around the building, even though I love the sun. Love the sun. Uh, I'll find you... Uh, the exit, uh, and got to see your you know, eyes adjusting. Not not good. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't say what I needed to say. Take your mask off, wash your hands, and douse your entire body. Lather it up in sanitizer. 
this one's done. So, what else do you want to see? Oh, you keep walking. You know, you got to quit walking in front of me. It's like you know where the exit is. You always walk ahead of me. Always, always, always. You know, I'm the one leading you, not you leading me. Just because I'm old. Stop it. What are you stopping for? Why, why, why did you stop? Don't, don't stop. Stop. Dude, come on. Oh, I see. You're looking at the pinups. You want to talk about pinups? We can talk bidding page next time. But as of now, just take these stairs. Scratch this thing.